Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhal. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Given that the writer's strike was just settled, I thought it would be a good idea to have a couple of working writers on the show to celebrate the 20th anniversary of their fantasy adventure film, Bulletproof Monk. Ethan Reeve and his fellow NYU grad partner, Cyrus Voris, Cy as I call him, have been screenwriters and television creators, writers and showrunners since the early 1990s. Together, they have written screenplays for Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight, the Ridley Scott Russell Crowe Robin Hood, which began as their spec script Nottingham, and DreamWorks Animation's Academy Award nominee for Best Animated Feature, Kung Fu Panda. That's a hell of a credit. I'm very jealous. In television, they have created and showrun such legends, uh, such series as Fox's Brimstone, CBS's 11th Hour, TNT's Legends, and the Emmy and Golden Globe-nominated Showtime series, which I loved, Sleeper Cell. Most recently, they have executive produced the Netflix Indian series Bard of Blood and Netflix History Channel's Nightfall. They are currently adapting the best-selling YA book, The Astronaut Instruction Manual for Alcon. Welcome, Ethan and Cy. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having us. So let me ask you right off the bat, uh, the writer's strike is over. How, how did you how did you survive that four months? What 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 did you do during that four month period? Oh my God, what did we do? Um, well, uh, I picketed occasionally, uh, spent more time with our my wife and my kids. Uh, helped get did my I renovated my a lot of my house. So you know, I just things like that. We didn't really do any writing this time along it's weird the last strike which was in we didn't do any we didn't really do any writing the last strikes so I, no, was I was gonna say in 2007 2008 we didn't do any writing because we were literally basically full-time on the picket lines every day for that strike this strike we hung back a little bit um but we didn't do any writing so um you know which i think you know we're i was i read an article recently that said a lot of people didn't do writing this time around it, it sort of felt, I don't know if it was just they had other things to do or whatever, but so. Well, I, I think I think we will shortly see that many writers did writing during the strike. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're writing spec no, anecdotally, anecdotally, you know, totally heard, cool. anecdotally, I've heard that there's not a lot of material coming out of the strike. So I didn't feel bad that Ethan and I didn't like write a new pilot or a feature or anything like that. Yeah, we had a we have a couple of projects where we're kind of like the godfathers, uh, mentors, helping some less experienced uh, writers on their original series projects. And while the strike went on, we continued with that job because nobody involved, neither ourselves nor those less experienced uh, new writers, are struck companies you know so we were able to do that and feel like we weren't you know in any way shape or form violating the strike rules and um you know that was a way to to keep some part of our writer creative writer minds and souls i think a little bit at least a little bit active which which was good 
you know. And it was good for those other uh, aspiring writers because their material got to they got the chance to improve it a little. If you know, if 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 Cy and I have know a little bit about what we're doing, they got the, the opportunity to sharpen their that material. So when it does go out into the marketplace at some point, hopefully in the near future, maybe it'll have a little bit better chance to succeed. Are you satisfied with the results of the strike? You mean the deal that we got? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Ethan, I go back and forth on this. I think for the most part, yes, there's a few loopholes that I think are a little uh, uh, troublesome. And the real the, the question with strikes is always at the end of the day, is it worth the work stoppage? And, and is what you get worth the pain and suffering that was caused by it? So that, that and that's still a, a question and answer for the future. So we'll see. Yeah, the big the big outstanding element. There's no way we can answer that now because having lived and worked through the most recent strike and just being older, you know, there's the law of unintended consequences and. Sometimes the law of unintended consequences is what ends up being the most impactful, you know, result of different situations, but it remains to be seen, you know. Are you both concerned about artificial intelligence replacing live writers? Well, I think a, a, a studio or network will always look for an opportunity to, to, to have less or no writers on a project. So and, and just anecdotally, uh, Ethan and I, when we, I'll speak for myself, had I, one of these projects that we were working on and helping a younger inexperienced writer on involved putting together a visual presentation for the project. And we were working with this graphic designer and we were uh, coming up with prototypes uh, for actors for some of the characters. So we'd say, oh, it's a former stripper in her late seventies, let's put Jane Fonda in there or, you know, it's a, a young woman, let's put uh, a Latino, let's put Jenny Ortega in there. And he came back with, well, a, a visual presentation. So I didn't use the actors, but I used AI to generate images. And these pictures were basically fake computer generated people that looked like Jane Fonda, but it wasn't Jane Fonda. It looked like, like say Jenny Ortega, but it wasn't Jenny Ortega. And I was really freaked out. I was like, oh my God, these are, these look like real photographs that are totally on point with what we were looking for in terms of the visual presentation of the characters, but they were totally generated by a computer. They were fake people. So that was really cool and also freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> so, Well, that, there's a couple of things though. First is before he generated that, uh, he before he, used AI to generate those visual materials, the graphic designer in question read the pilot script and then read a series document. And those images came from him digesting all the information about the characters and the world that the writer and Cy and I had crafted onto those pages. It wasn't like he went to his computer and typed in, you know, one sentence or five sentences or whatever. Maybe it was five sentences because you can probably boil down the essence of a three-dimensional character to five sentences. It wasn't like he pushed the button and boom, those images, you know, appeared out of AI. It required 
sort of prime, you know, it required priming the pump, so to speak. And, you know, the issue is, well, maybe a studio executive or a streaming service executive or a producer can do that creative priming of the pump without requiring the services of a, of a writer, right? And that's a that's a potential that's a potential issue. At the same time, how you actually successfully legislate and regulate AI, you know, it, it's a very open ended uh, question and challenge. Yeah. And the, the the metaphor I use is like is like nuclear weapons, right? Like, guess what? Once the United States had nuclear weapons. Humanity was not going back to a world without nuclear weapons. Now, there was still a lot of time, effort, thought uh, put into trying to make sure that nuclear weapons were never again used in anger, you know, or used for to test new, improved versions of, you know, of themselves as little as possible. But we still live in a world full of nuclear weapons. And uh, for me, speaking personally, just my own dumb opinion, I think that'll be the case, you know, for many, many centuries to come, whatever. And that's just the way it is. So you can't you can't put it back into a box or just say it's it's it can never be used because it's too useful, you know? It's just about the details of how you try to make sure it isn't used in in some egregious, you know, in some egregious fashion. Well, someone, what, what, some, Steve, I'm just gonna add to that. Someone pointed out to me recently that. Um, all the great movies that warn of the dangers of technology uh, and artificial intelligence, The Matrix, Terminator, all those movies required... Wait, on his show, you got to say, like, Colossus, The Forbin Project. No, no, okay. Well, but all those movies required, uh, The Matrix and The Terminator, for example, required insane technological breakthroughs and special effects in order to achieve this story about how technology is dangerous. I thought that was sort of a, a funny uh, dichotomy, you know, like a contradiction. It's like, well, technology is evil, but we need new technology to show you this cool movie. So, <laughs> Well, one of the things I was going to say is that one of the great challenges for any writer is called the blank page. You're staring at that blank page. How do you start? Now with all this, this uh, AI stuff, if you want to do a story about uh, pygmies living on a desert island with only pineapple to keep them alive you probably will get five pages on what they need to do to survive <laughs> i have does, does that strike you as a super commercial it's an instant <laughs> instant beating war premise Steve? well it may work in swaziland but i was just using it as a reference point but i have personal yeah. experience i have we i don't know if you guys know we did a children's book that came out three years ago called the cat who lived with anne frank and oh, it's wow. all the, it's the attic in 1942 from the cat's point of view. There really was a cat that lived in the attic. And I, I we one of the schools that we were showing it to asked for a study guide. So I didn't I didn't I've never done a study guide before. So I typed into chat GBT, the yeah. cat who lived with Anne Frank study guide, uh, uh, fifth and sixth graders. I got five pages. With yeah. very little editing, that it just that freaked me out too. That's an example of a positive use of, of I believe, I, even though it freaked you out. And I don't was, tell that, don't tell that to the nonfiction junior writers. Yeah, you know, I, I, well, on this show, know about Anne Frank and cats. You know, on this show, I will say that is strikes me as a positive use of AI, as even the thing example we were citing 
with the visual presentation for the writer's show that generated the, the uh, fake actors, I thought, well, this is a really cool thing. At the same time, as you said, Steve, it's also a little, it's a little disconcerting. It's a little like, oh, okay, oh my God, all right, interesting. Yeah, they used to call it the elephant in the room. Now we've got the computer in the room or whatever you call it. So let me ask you guys, you guys have been writing for quite a few years. Uh, our listeners are all film fans, film buffs, interested in the industry in various aspects. Tell me what uh, what brought you to film in the first place? Uh, were you both? And, and, and why don't you go first, Ethan? When you were a little kid, was movie going a big deal for you? Yeah, the short answer is yes, absolutely. When I was a kid, I only had I only had two ambitions, really. Uh, one was to be a movie director, because we didn't really say filmmaker when I was a kid. Uh, and the other was to be a paratrooper. And I got into NYU film school, and I went to NYU film school. And I actually, I don't even know if Cy knows this, oddly enough, even though we've been working together for like, longer than most of the people listening to this have probably been alive uh but the halfway through my senior year of film school i actually joined the army on a delayed enlistment in the, the hopes of joining being in the 82nd airborne but it, i didn't have to actually go and show up until that summer because i was i was going to finish college and the recruiter wanted me to be like a videographer, which is a MOS or military occupational specialty at the time in whatever that, that was like 1985 86. And because he said, oh, you're you know, going to have all this education and you could have like a really good career. And I was like, I just want to be like a grunt and try and jump out of airplanes for four years. That's just something I always wanted to do. Let me, you know, and he was like, OK, he was a pretty young African-American guy, actually. Anyway. And then early in the last semester of college, I developed uh, type one insulin dependent diabetes. So that was the end of my uh, military, you know, dream ambitions, which it wasn't, I don't think I was going to have a career in the military. I was just going to have a, a life experience. And because of that, uh, I only had one, uh, one ambition left, which I think I would have come, I, I would have, to use the more contemporary language, I would have circled back to uh, filmmaking, you know, if I had been in the army, probably four years later or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't go out of filmmaking. I just uh, graduated from film school and tried to uh, succeed, you know, on, in, on that path. And what happened was Cy and I, you, you know, Cy really well for many years. So you may have heard this story multiple times, but we're not. Cy and I met, we never knew each other at NYU film school. He was one year ahead of me. He's, he's like, two years older than me and I skipped a grade in middle in junior high school because the, the age I am in New York City's public school system for a while kids who were like smart skipped the eighth grade you did like one and a half years in the seventh grade and one and a half years in the ninth grade because they thought that would be really good because you get like a year ahead and which it was not I don't think it was bad for me that I know of but some people say it was bad for kids I never met him as a student, but we had a mutual friend who was a classmate of mine who Cy had worked with at like the copy center, I think, at NYU, and a guy named Michael Wolstadt. And Michael Wolstadt threw a graduation party. And so he invited me because I was a classmate of his for the past four years and a friend of his. And he invited Cy 
because Cy was a guy he had worked side by side with for, I don't know, at least a year, maybe, you know, maybe a couple of years. And Cy and I met at this graduation party. And crazy as it may sound, in the spring of 1986, Cy and I, when we met, were the only two people we had ever met who were trying to write traditional Hollywood feature screenplays and were students at at the NYU film program, <laughs> which might sound crazy those, now, but, but in it, those days it was all uh, independent it, it was, films, experimental films, documentaries. Nobody wanted to write like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, that was much more traditional. Hollywood movies were seen as the the domain of USC, which was like the industry feeder school out here, and NYU was famous for like Cy was just saying documentary, into you know. Uh, just experimental film, that kind of stuff. American independent film was just kind of, it had just started to become a thing with like Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee making their first movies. Um, but there was nobody who wanted to do traditional Hollywood storytelling that we knew at least in, in the, because there was a separate program for dramatic writing. There was like a dramatic and visual writing school or something. And we were in the actual film school. So, so we met and we started talking about movies and we liked some of the same directors. We liked some of the same movies. We were both in the middle of writing our first ever screenplays. And we said, when we finish, we should trade and read each other's scripts and talk. And so, so that's what happened. Yeah. I, I grew up in the Midwest. I was not a big movie goer until high school. I was more of a TV junkie. I was like a TV kid and uh, they, but they opened a rep house in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, probably when I was in 10th or 11th grade. And uh, it was really easy access. My school was downtown. So you could sort of hang out after school and then go to like a seven o'clock show. So I started going to this rep house and that's sort of where I really became a movie buff um and then you know as Ethan said went to NYU we didn't know each other in school met afterward uh traded screenplays um Ethan always says the joke is we really liked each other's scripts but uh the thing that I hated the most of his script was his favorite thing and the thing he disliked in my script was my favorite thing <laughs> but maybe there was some which is true yeah it was there. true it was, it was kind of kind of funny. Yeah, I'll do it very briefly because I talked about other stuff. Like for me, I was always a movie guy, right? I think I got my a regular eight camera when I was like eight years old and started making, you know, home movies that were scripted. In my case, mostly period pieces. Actually, well, I, did, like a, I did the home. I'm movie a big history guy. I did the Super 8 movie thing too, but I never, for some reason, again, I would, I didn't go to the movies a lot. I did, I made the Super 8 movies in yeah. the yard. And I, I went to the movies a lot, but I also watched a lot of movies at home because I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And in New York, it was the four o'clock movie and the 4.30 movie were on every single day of the week. So if I wasn't busy that afternoon, you know, I would I would watch a movie the 4:30 movie because it was only an hour and a half I guess between 4:30 and the six o'clock local news. It was sometimes they split bigger movies up into two parts, you know, 
And so it would be you watch the first half one day and the, the second half the next day. I, I, bet and, it was this, I bet it was the same as L.A. because we had the six o'clock movie and they had a horrible reputation for taking movies that were uh, like two hour movies and running them in a 90 minute time slot with commercials. So they oh, cut wow. chunks out. They're the most egregious. I think I remember my friend told me they ran the original The Day the Earth Stood Still, where the, the, the movie begins with Michael Rennie's Klaatu character walking down the street about to enter a rooming house. They eliminated the whole opening of the movie. But <laughs> so what, what what's the very first movie you remember seeing as a kid? Everybody has their first movie memory of a movie. So Ethan, yeah. what's yours? Yeah, mine was a man, man called Flintstone. <laughs> which you know i was age appropriate i guess for that probably came out when i was like five years old or something the zabba dabba do is one of your first catchphrases probably uh-huh <laughs> i mean i knew the flintstones from well, watching him on tv i guess which is i never thought about that before but i guess it's a very early perhaps the earliest like cross-platform adaptation or something or, you know? what about you si i I don't remember the first one, but I remember one I saw when I was a kid that left a crazy impression on me. And I, I was trying to track it down for like 30 or 40 years and finally was able to. It was a, it, this is in the 70s, but it was actually a movie from the 50s that played at a kid's matinee called Journey to the Beginning of Time, which had dinosaurs, had kids going back in time and finding dinosaurs and they actually get to the beginning of time and it's this like bleak gray shore there's like the water it's the ocean but it's dark and depressing and there's nothing because it's the beginning of time and it freaked me out as a kid i was like oh my god i thought i was going to see a kid's movie it turned out years later i found out it was a czechoslovakian film <laughs> made, made still under like i guess in the late 50s so it was still very uh post-war eastern europe and so the bleak factor of it was like obvious and and but I, I i literally for years before the internet i thought i had sort of made this movie up in my head because it was a movie that you couldn't find nobody knew what i was talking about and then years later i found out uh i tracked it down thanks to dvd and the internet and it's sort of a famous czech film by a famous czech filmmaker that i guess was released in the united states and redubbed for kids in like the 70s because it had dinosaurs in it and cavemen. Did, did your dad take you to see that movie? No, I think I just got dropped off at the movie theater because it played at like a kid's matinee. Wow, you know? that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, when they like drop you off to like watch a movie, you know. So but it wasn't the Walt Disney Film Festival that played every summer. <laughs> no, no, it was just, you know, it was like a matinee, like sort of a, a place yeah. that specialized in kids' movies. And, oh, yeah. Well, that was my local theater. They had the kids' matinees, a double feature, and, a, you know, things. I, I'm a little older than you guys. So, uh, you know, I, I saw The Day There Is to Still on the big screen. It was a re-release. I mean, that movie came out in 1951, the year I was yeah. born. So I didn't see it probably till 1958. But they had great double features in those days, like like The Day There Is to Still and, and The Blob, uh, Terror from the Year 5000. Roger Corman was a big deal in those days. So yeah. let's uh, let's fast forward a little bit. I, I would love to spend a lot of time on all of your film experiences. But about a month ago, I was uh, kind of surfing through the streamers and I came across Bulletproof Monk and I 
I looked at the little log line. I said, oh, this is interesting because I, I, I won't say that I am a big Chinese mythos type watcher. I watch them occasionally. But I find lately that a lot of the really good films have kind of a Chinese origin feeling about it. So tell kind of walk me through how this project came to came to you. Well, that's 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 an interesting, oh, interesting you know question I'll, slash answer. I'll it was all about well, it was just dinner. We had dinner. Well, but wait, we got to back it up before that. Two two oh. things. One is uh, Ethan and I were uh, you know after school we stayed in New York for several years. But I mean, I was from New York, so I just stayed in New I York. Mean, but I mean, we Cy, were, Cy was from far away, but he put down roots. We, didn't come, roots we were not in Los Angeles yet. We were in New York, and New York has a vibrant Chinatown, which in the 80s still had three, maybe four movie theaters that showed movies from Hong Kong, which because Hong Kong was still a British colony, they all were had English subtitles. So you could technically go to every movie that was made in Hong Kong and understand what was going on. Because Interesting, the, interestingly enough, as a quick side note, they also had Chinese subtitles so that people in different parts of the Chinese speaking world who spoke different dialects of Chinese could also watch the movies. So we sort of fell into watching these movies while we were still in New York. And we were, Ethan and I were probably the only uh, American non-Chinese non people in the theaters most of the time. And we started watching these Jackie Chan movies. We started seeing early John Woo movies, movies with Chai and Fat, and became really big fans of those movies. And then we came out here and uh, we started our careers. And uh, the, the origin of Bullet, our involvement, Bulletproof Monk, actually, we uh, managed to get a meeting with John Woo. And part of the thing was that Again, John Woo was still a new, relatively new commodity in the United States, but Ethan and I had been fans of all his movies for like several years at that point. So we managed to scam our way into a meeting with John Woo. We pitched an idea to him and his producer, Terrence Chang, uh, for a totally different movie, an original movie idea that was uh, devised to be a team up between Chalian Fat and an American star and uh, more of a gritty crime movie. And John Woo really liked it. Ethan and I had a, uh, up to that point, the biggest pitch of our careers, which was at uh, the William Morris offices with uh, John Travolta's people, because John Woo had just finished, I think, Broken Arrow with John Travolta. And John Woo really thought this idea that Ethan and I came up with would be a great vehicle for John Woo and John Travolta. Well, the, the short version is, and actually, when we when we did that pitch meeting in Beverly Hills, John Woo was in Australia making the Mission, Mission Impossible sequel. Two, I think, right. yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, the, the, the short version is that project fell through for a lot of reasons. We sort of resuscitated it, ironically, and sold it uh, to Richard Donner with Jet Li attached. <laughs> well, we we and Richard Donner sold yes. it to oh, Disney so it, with Jet Li. It attached. still never got made, but because we had had a good experience and John Woo really liked uh, the idea, when uh, Bulletproof Monk came across his desk, which was a small press independent comic book, that ironically, it was a four-issue miniseries. Only the first issue had come out and the character of the Bulletproof Monk was not in the series. He was sort of like this just mythical figure that's referred to. 
But for some reason, John Woo loved the title and he liked us and he said, you guys know all our movies and, and know, so we'd love to develop this project for Chai and Fat to be the Bulletproof Monk. Yeah, and when I said it was dinner, what happened was, well, we got invited by Terrence Chang, who was John Woo's producing partner, to dinner with Terrence Chang and Chai and Fat. And Sai and I had been huge fans of Chai and Fat for the previous 10 years. So the opportunity to go to dinner and Terrence Chang has said, are you going to tell you about a project to go to dinner and have the chance to adapt some other piece of material into a movie for Chai and Fat was like a dream come true. So I said to Sai, hey, if Terrence Chang pulls a toilet seat out of his briefcase and says, this is the story that we want you guys to adapt into a movie for Chai and Fat, I'll be like, that's a brilliant idea. Yes. That that will do it. Sign us on the dotted line. Yeah. And Chai and Fat is incredibly charming and charismatic. Really, there's some actors that you need in real life, and they're they they just are sort of life size, and and it's interesting. You're like, hmm, well, this guy doesn't seem as impressive as he does in a movie. But Chai and Fat walks in the room, and you just like go, who's that guy? He must be a movie star. He's like incredibly charismatic, and and. Uh, and, and they pulled out this independent comic book called Bulletproof Monk. Everybody loved the title. And, but as I said, the challenge was uh, you, we only had the first part of the story and the character that Chai and Pat was supposed to play was not in the comic book. The title character, the Bulletproof Monk himself. But in some ways, because Ethan and I, our entire career has been really has been based on coming up with original material and original storylines. We sort of, this, this was the best case scenario because in a way, what would seem like an insurmountable challenge, write a movie based on this comic book where the main character is not in the comic book and you've only got the first like 20 minutes of the movie and you have no idea how the story ends or goes. That was great for us because we could basically craft the part for Chai Yun Fat and which wasn't in the comic and we could uh come up with essentially our own storyline based on the few elements that were in the first issue of the comic book yeah the other thing to add is that earlier um it, for me earlier earlier in our careers and in my life i had actually gone with a friend and a film school classmate who was a chinese american guy who i met at nyu i had gone with him to Beijing, China, to help him make uh, his like graduate thesis film. Um, and so I actually worked, lived and worked in the People's Republic of China for like a month and a half. And also I, on the crew, I met my future wife who I, I was assistant director and she was a translator. So we spent all our time together and we ended up uh, becoming an item, so to speak. And then I left after a month and a half. And then I went back later and to get in, to meet her family and officially get engaged. And then I went back again to get married. And so I had I had some deeper uh, experience with China and Chinese culture and uh, contemporary Chinese life. And after I married my wife or even before I married my wife, you know, I I knew her family and I spent time with her family in China. And so that I think helped us in 
with Terrence Chang and John Wu and then with Chayan Fat, the fact that Sai had grown up as a huge, huge martial arts movie lover, even though I guess he didn't, you know, go to the movies all that much, but he did, he did go to see Kung Fu movies or watch them on TV at home. And so he had like this deep, long abiding love and respect for that material. And I had actually lived in China and my wife was Chinese and I spoke a little Chinese. And then we had come to them with this other project, which they all not Chinese. Well, actually, yeah, Chinese fat, because Chinese fat was going to be the co-star in that movie, which all three of them loved, but fizzled out. We were sort of like the perfect guys in their mind to take this uh, comic book, you know, and, and turn it into a vehicle for Chinese fat where at least we had a, a little somewhat more familiarity with the, East Asian cultural aspects or pop culture aspects than, you know, the average uh, American screenwriter would have. Now, who was backing all of this? Uh, were, who, like, who was, at this point, who was the financing entity? It was MGM. MGM had a deal with John Woo. Um, and, and I, I think it was, honestly, I believe it was originally... John Wu and Terrence Chang's independent production company. And we developed the pitch with them to go along with the comic book. And we took it to MGM and we pitched it to them. And MGM said, we love this. This is great. Let's go forward. And, and they deal with John Wu. Uh, I think they produced Wind Talkers, which was a movie that John Wu directed. So the M it was with MGM. But um, the, the other thing that I remember was um, that while we were developing the project, while we were writing the script. So we sold the project, we got it set up at MGM, we were writing this first draft. And while we were writing it, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out and was a huge hit, you know, box office, critical acclaim. And because Chalian Fat is one of the stars of that, suddenly his, uh, he had done a few Hollywood movies up to that point that were moderately successful. But because Crouching Tiger came out was a big global hit, suddenly Chai and Fat being attached to this project was a huge deal for MGM. And I think that's why the movie got the green light so quickly after you know, we had set it up. So the, um, the, the fact that you had a domestic distributor involved is, is great because I... Over the years, I've heard that these co-productions between U.S. and Chinese companies can be very fraught with difficulties. Uh, so that was probably a great plus to have a U.S. company involved. Um, uh, I was going to ask you, um, who financed the first draft of the script? Was it Chang and Wu or did MGM finance it? No, it was, it was MGM. And I'll I'll just go back one frame to what you just uh, mentioned in, in, a, in a very uh, wise aside about how a lot of these, a lot of, say, Chinese-themed or East Asian-themed projects in Hollywood that are supposed to be financed by Chinese or other Asian money uh, end up oftentimes uh, don't come to fruition because after Bulletproof Monk was made. And then a little later, Kung Fu Panda was made. Sai and I sort of became, we had a, a somewhat high profile or stock, you know, as Hollywood screenwriters, 
who can who know about uh, Chinese uh, topics or subjects and can deliver the goods, you know. And we had a almost endless series of Chinese producers and Chinese studios come to us with potential projects. And of all of them, over the course of many years, none of them ended up actually being, you know, working out once it came to the nitty gritty of the business side, except one at the tail end, which the guys, the Chinese guys with the money on that one were actually based in Hong Kong, not in mainland China. So it was, uh, you know, we sort of realized along the, along that path, we realized there's a good chance that this is not going to come to fruition. You know? Also, it's just not a, it's, it's just the, the way of doing business is different and the way of doing contracts. Ethan and I tried to, uh, at one point, get the rights oh. to adapt a Hong Kong movie. Um, and uh, it was soon after, I think, The Departed was, was a big hit. And so there were a lot of, like, agencies that were like setting up these meetings and we were like and and people were like oh you know find a find a cool chinese movie to remake and we had a movie that we really loved that we were trying to get the remake rights for we pitched the project to the people that supposedly own the rights and we were moving ahead with it and then at one point uh you know we were trying to close the deal and uh we needed a chain of title saying that like you know they actually own the rights to this movie and then we would be optioning the material and that's what we would need in order to get this project set up at any studio in town and the chinese company was like well we don't have a chain of title we don't have anything like that uh, what do you mean <laughs> we have, well yeah. they weren't they weren't that clear and above board actually that was what Sai just delivered as the answer There's was after, like, that. like a year or a, at least half a year of back and forth with lawyers and executives. We don't have no stinking chain of title. <laughs> <laughs> so as a writing team, and I'm a member of a writing team too, I'm curious, uh, when you are working on a screenplay together, are you both in the room or are you writing separate scenes or... How does your dynamic work? Well, it started when it started for years, we were both in the room and that was just sort of, and either one of us was typing and one of us was talking or vice versa. We were both in the room and we were going over everything uh, as we were writing. As we really, when we got into television and in television, especially if in, when you're in production, you have an incredible time constraint. Um, so, you know, you're always on a deadline if you're producing a television show. At that point, we had been writing together long enough, both of us at the computer, that we were sort of, uh, because of the time constraints, it, it just wasn't practical to do that. So then it became more like we would outline, generally we'd outline a project together at the computer or at the typewriter in the old, old days or at the Commodore 64 in the old, old days. But that was it, before TV, but yeah. Yeah, but we would outline the project together. And then at that point, and usually we would write like the first 10, 15 pages together at the computer, because you want to get a sense of the tone. You want to get a, you want to get into a rhythm of the characters of the type of scenes you're doing. And then at that point, again, sort of driven by the television schedule, it became like, okay, you go write this, uh, 
you know, this scene between the two characters where they're fighting about so-and-so's wife and I'll go write this uh, chase scene and then we'll go back and we'll trade those and rewrite that. And so, so at the end of the day, even though we would start splitting up scenes, um, we would write, rewrite each other's material. And then the final version would be the two of us again, sort of sitting at the computer again. So everything that we, uh, generate is gone through uh, both of our hands and our minds and our eyes multiple times. But again, and, and I think that's sort of how we still work now. Um, I, I think we've been working together so long that you develop a certain trust level where, you know, I don't know exactly how Ethan's going to approach a scene, but I know he's not going to screw it up. And I think vice versa, so that we can trust each other to do versions of these scenes, and then we can come back and work on each other's material and throw it up against the wall and see what sticks. But when we started, we literally just both were hovering over the computer all day, every day. But you guys would you would take turns driving. Sometimes Ethan would drive. Sometimes uh, Cy would drive. You, you mean no, driving to meetings or driving? No, no, no. no. We typing, typing, driving the scene. Yeah. Yes, but we would yeah. both be there. Like again, it would be like Ethan would be typing and I'd be saying, and then Joe says this, and then Bob says this, and then Ethan would say, but then maybe Joe could yeah. say this. Or generally, I would be typing and then Ethan generally speaking, right. in the early days, I would be at the computer because it was my side mentioned in passing Commodore 64. You didn't want computer. me to break his Commodore 64. <laughs> it wasn't that. It was so I would be doing the typing, but half the time I'd be typing and then Cy would sit down and revise what I typed. And the other half of the time, I'd be transcribing what Cy was telling me because while he was sitting or standing or pacing or whatever, oh, he was sure, sure. in yeah, the same space. And then I would do a tweak pass on that. You know, Over the years, we've heard a lot of different variations because I think every every writing partnership and, you know is very specific, obviously. And sometimes you hear one person in the team is all the char great characters because they know people so well and they have such a wide breadth of experience with different kinds of human beings. And the other person is like world building and places and locations because they travel a lot or whatever. And, you know, that's cool if that's how it works. For, for myself and Cy, it was always just a 50-50 split down the middle of we both were as engaged and and uh as as much served as much as the source of pretty much every subdivision on the list of what goes into this project you know now you guys are writer producers now and you've been for many years on bulletproof monk was there a sense that you guys would also have a producing function on this movie or were you writers pure and simple no we were we were writers pure and simple but interestingly enough when bulletproof monk got made we had already crossed over into television and already become executive producers of tv show shows showrunners. and showrunners yes showrunners and i actually remember being aware of the fact that on bulletproof monk some of the things that we did in terms of our ideas about casting or i our ideas about some changes to some particular, you know, details of how of how an element of the story was going to get done. Um, 
were kind of producer ask producer contributions but we didn't we certainly we certainly didn't get any producer credit and we weren't we bulletproof monk I'll, i think i i speak for sai as well as myself when i say this in the movie world bulletproof monk was like probably the most purely positive experience of our careers until the movie came out and tanked at the box office. <laughs> so, which is just what happened for a variety of reasons. But in terms of our, our dealing with notes on the screenplay and our being embraced during pre-production, production and post-production by every all the other more important more higher level powers that be because if you know about hollywood you know the screenwriter if you're not also the director or the producer or the movie star is is the least equal of all those parties the lowest right? man on the total yeah yeah it was very positive we we had we really i mean we might have had some creative complaints along the way there you know but in terms of the professionalism and like the just positivity and like the human decency with which we were treated and and, and that experience for us we had no we had no complaints even yeah. though even though they didn't give us producer credit for some well, of our I'll give you contributions a, a perfect example we were on the set and here's like a weird little producing thing but we were on the set and if, if you and Sly, so tell us where this is was this movie fin was this made in california no it was made in uh toronto in, in canada so we were on the set in toronto at an old movie theater that had been art directed to be a Chinese movie theater, uh, sort of autobiographical that Ethan and I started watching these Hong Kong movies in. And the character played by uh, Shaolin Scott works in the Chinese movie theater. And the conceit of the movie is sort of fun is that he's sort of, uh, he's learning, he's learned martial arts by watching endless Kung Fu movies at this old Chinese movie theater. And then he obviously encounters uh, Chiang Fat, who's a real martial artist, et cetera. But I remember we were on the set and the and art directed this movie theater and they put up all these fake kung fu movie posters that were all emulating like 1970s uh american like sort of chuck norris or bruce lee or 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 jim kelly movies and first of all they were fake movie posters which and they weren't very well done and also it was the totally wrong vibe we were the, the way it was supposed to be and we actually went to Terrence Chang who was on set who's the one of the producers of the movie and we said Terrence this is all wrong these should be actual Hong Kong this is supposed to be a movie theater that's in a Chinatown that's frequented by Chinese people these should all be actual Chinese language movie posters and Terrence Chang like was like oh okay you got you're right and he basically had all the posters taken down and replaced with authentic Hong Kong movie posters, which he was able to get access to, because obviously he's a big producer in Hong Kong. And it, and so, I mean, that's a perfect example of a small detail, but as a producing thing that Ethan and I were able to do to sort of like give the movie more authenticity or give the mise-en-scene. Yeah, the only thing, the only, uh, the only addition I'll make to that anecdote is that side told is that First, Terrence Chang, I'm sure, went to Paul Hunter, the director. And oh, obviously the director. Spoke to him and got his uh, approval and uh, agreement on that adjustment to the uh, set decoration. Let, let me ask a question. The movie begins with, like, I guess all action movies these days has the big action set piece, which uh, 
is fabulous. They're fighting on this bridge thing with all this crazy characters and they're introducing Chow Yun-Fat's character. Then you cut to 1940s, uh, I guess it's like a Tibet or a Nepal. I assume that Ethan, being the history buff, did you decide to give the story a World War II beginning or was that in the comic book? You know, that's a very good question. And I'm so old. It's tough for me to answer, but I think that was us. I think we came up with the World War II, um, the World War II uh, prologue. Um, and actually, we put it into a comic book version of the movie, which came out, even though the movie's based on one comic book miniseries, there was actually another comic book that came out when the movie was released and we contributed one story to that comic it was kind of like a compilation of a few small short short stories and that was a world war ii story also um yeah and it is it is tibet and i was familiar with uh, you know it's on the one hand it's not original at all in a post raiders of the lost ark universe but Hitler and uh, some of the other Nazi big shots from uh, the Third Reich were obsessed with the occult, and uh, they they did have interest in in Tibet. So sure, that sure. that that came from uh, from a real historical source. Yeah. Also, we felt like you know who better villain? The Nazis are always great bad guys. You know, instantly yeah. hateable. <laughs> hateable. best villains in the whole world so here's yeah. chow who just uh is very formidable um now how long did you guys get to come on to set were you there just for a visit or were you there the whole time the film was shooting we weren't there the whole time we were there for i would say about the we were there for prep so we were there for four or five weeks uh doing rewrites on the on the script for like production rewrites and then i would think there we were there for about two weeks for the initial first couple weeks of shooting. And then we had various, like I uh, went through Toronto a, a month or so later with my family and we went to the set for a couple days. Um, and then we were somewhat involved in post-production a little bit. Um, the, you know, the one thing I'll say about this movie, which may have contributed to its, you know, not being that successful at the box office was we had written a very, um offbeat but edgy sort of martial arts mystical action movie uh it did have comedy in it but it was very um, it had it had a little more of a sort of punk rock kind of uh grittiness you know um yeah, originally we used to say the pitch was it was like uh raiders of the lost ark meets train spotting with kung fu that was <laughs> that was the original idea and what happened is when Paul Hunter, the director, was hired. He had had he had done. He was a super hot music video director who had done some of the edgiest, coolest, cutting edge music videos of the time. And so when he was hired, everybody thought Paul was gonna. It had this edgy, offbeat martial arts fantasy movie, and Paul was gonna do this edgy, cool, cutting edge action direction. And Paul was very clear from day one that, no, I want to do sort of a family movie. I want to do a Spielberg type of movie. I want to do a, a movie for all ages. And I think MGM and the studio and the powers of Egypt, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. He's saying that, but look at these super cool hot videos that he's doing that are edgy and cool, and he's gonna make it urban and cool, and 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 he's cutting edge. And Paul just consistently told them the type of movie he wanted to make out of the material, and everybody just ignored him and thought, no, no, he's just saying that. He's just saying that. I mean, the the one thing again, the one thing I'll butt in and add is that we didn't ignore him because we took him at his word, and in the early days of notes meetings and and pre-production meetings we diplomatically or not we pushed back on some of that you know some of that creative vision you know uh from him but it became clear that everybody there supported him a thousand percent and he was a smart and talented guy and he was also a good guy and we were just, you know, our concerns or our our caution regarding some of those adjustments or changes fell on deaf ears. And so we sort of fell into line like, you know, good soldiers, so to speak. Right. And so the thing is, while I think the movie is fun, I think it totally missed the target audience or the audience that what the audience expected from the movie when it was released. I always jokingly say, and it's actually not jokingly, it's true. When we did the first test screening and the results came in, and obviously the target audience for a chai and fat martial arts action movie is young males, and you know, they expect an edgy cool movie. It was the uh, Ethan and I have written the only martial arts action movie universally beloved by middle-aged women and teenage girls. That was <laughs> that that was the that was the audience that checked the boxes and said, oh. You know, amazing, awesome, five stars, rec- must recommend, must see. And the target audience, which was guys and younger males, almost universally hated the movie because I think they were obviously Bulletproof Monk, Chai and Fat, you know, Shawn Scott. They were expecting a different type of movie than what the director delivered. Well, the, uh, the, other, the, the other thing that we experienced, and it was the first time, and again, it was a positive experience for us in our feature careers because we were there from the beginning to the end. Unlike most of the other movies that we'd worked on before where we were instantly fired and replaced so other people could come on and rewrite us or we were kept along for a little while, but we pushed back too much and then we were fired and replaced. It, it was a good experience because we were there, but we we learned this other lesson, which was the movie had a little bit more oomph it had a little bit more like weight and impact when it started out doing test screenings and they tried to incorporate various various notes that a certain number of people from a test audience you know the first time gave them and then the second test audience screening gave them and so on and it became clear to me inside that by the time we got through the, the editing post-production revisions from the beginning of the test screenings to the end of the test screenings, everything that had been cut out, which were small, relatively, you know, specific, you might say at the time, minor cuts, it added up. And it was kind of like the movie sort of suffered a death of a thousand cuts. And it's still a fun movie. It's still, maybe it's arguably a good movie, but it's definitely less dramatically impactful than it was at the beginning of that test screening process before they started scrambling to 
make the make the movie they had made work better for particular niches of the audience, you know? Oh, and that yeah. was just that was just interesting. I mean, it was it was painful because it was in a way it was our baby, but it wasn't our original baby, you know. Well, and it was just interesting. The tone you're describing kind of reminds me a little bit of that Ryan Reynolds series, Dare, uh, uh, Deadpool, because Deadpool has that edgy kind of dark quality in in a in a in a in a family yeah. family movie, but it has that <laughs> that quality about it. So this is an example of you guys actually being involved from start to finish, and they they actually filmed your script without other writers involved. Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the again, thing you have, but, you have to keep in mind, though, again, it's a weird dynamic because on a film, it's still the director's baby. The director is the man in charge. So if Paul Hunter, the director or any director, uh, and Paul was a great guy, he was great to work with, but he had a particular vision of the movie. And so what happens is on a feature film, unlike television, where if you're a writer producer, you have some control ultimately over the material. You have no control in the feature. So we could we could say, gee, Paul, are you sure you want to make it a family movie? Or gee, Paul, it was a little edgier. I'm not sure. Do you really want to cut out that line? At the end of the day, he's the boss and it's his vision. So it's that odd thing where you're sort of handing your uh, project over to somebody else and then they take it. And as Ethan said, we didn't get rewritten on the movie, but it wasn't obviously it wasn't the movie that Ethan and I originally sort of were concocting or had concocted and quite frankly i don't think it's the movie that mgm thought they were getting and so the end of the, the end of the day is as ethan said i think it's a fun movie i think it's a good movie it's not what we originally conceived of and it certainly missed the boat with the target audience i think it's better now looking at it 20 years later because well, it did. It did succeed when it came out on dvd it actually like it tanked at the box office that was Part of that was timing because it was literally released the weekend that the that the United that we invaded Iraq in whatever that was, you know, 2003, I guess. Or yeah. And so that had an impact. A lot of people just stayed home to watch, you know, CNN. Also, there was or, and there was SARS. That's right. China, so Chang and Fat was not uh, available to promote the movie around. Yeah. The world. So that's another issue. So that's. Uh, excuse me for interrupting, but let's talk a little bit about Chow Yun-Fat in terms of since you were on the set working with him, is he a physical guy? Is he the guy? I remember once hanging out with Pat Morita in the Karate Kid movies, and Pat Morita is pretty deft playing that role of Mr. Miyagi, you know, doing those moves. He said when he came home at night, every every part of his body hurt. and He was like limping along. What's Chow Yun-Fat like on the set? Well, when we were when we were working with Chang and Fat, he was still younger and more spry than Pat Morita, I think, when, when we were <laughs> yeah. hanging out with him, you know? So yeah, Chang and Fat is was at that at that point, you know, which God help me, is like you, you said 20. earlier, 20 years ago, which is crazy, was was a very uh, physically uh, capable, uh, somewhat athletic guy. But most of our interaction with him. And the stuff, the fun stories I remember, and that probably Sai remembers also, didn't have much to do with uh, his athleticism or his physical ability. It was more just about his charm and his wit. For instance, oh, at wait, one... I just want to jump in really quick yeah. and set this up and say 
the thing that I'm, and I think Ethan, you would agree with me, the thing that we're most proud of in this movie, it's the only American Chian Fat movie where Chian Fat gets to be charming and funny. All his other American movies, they basically just looked at his Hong Kong action movies and said, oh, he's this quiet guy with two guns and he kills everybody and he's, he doesn't say anything. Yeah. And he's like Steve McQueen. But we had seen dozens of Chai and Fats movies and we'd seen him do romantic comedy. We'd seen him do musicals. We'd seen him do broad comedy, slapstick, uh, you know, Cary Grant type roles, yeah. Clark Gable type roles. So we knew he had this incredible range. And so part of what we wanted to do in the movie is like, well, let's write a character that lets Chai and Fat display this part of his personality and this part of his talent that has not been in display in any of his American movies. And I think he's really funny in the movie. Yeah. And he has a great rapport with Sean William Scott. And that to me is, that's the thing that I think works the best. And that's the thing that I think Ethan and I are most proud of is that we were able to give Chai and Fat a vehicle in an English language movie where he could be that guy that we knew he could be, but nobody else in America had really seen him do that. Yeah. Now, Sean William Scott, uh, who's very good as well, uh, was there a whole casting process? Was he one of the first people chosen or were there other people considered? Oh, there was a lot of other people. There was a long, elaborate casting process. Um, he did a screen test, I believe, with Jamie Presley, right, Si? Yes, yes. Playing Jamie. the female lead. Playing the James King part, yes. Yeah. Which... Sean William Scott was basically... He was Stifler from the American Pie movies, and they really were reluctant to cast him in this movie. Initially, um, the studio wanted Paul Walker from the Fast and the Furious movies to play this part. And then I guess they, I, I believe they tried to make a deal with Paul Walker, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And Chayanne Fat, I don't know if it was Paul Hunter's idea, or I'm not telling you, Fat, Shaolin Scott, I don't know if it was Paul Hunter's idea or Chuck Roven, uh, the producer, the sort of big producer of the movie. But that was a real stretch because Shalom Scott had never done anything like this in terms of being in action and doing that type of stuff. And they did this pretty elaborately staged, photographed, art directed, you know, with with costumes and everything, um, screen test with Shalom Scott and uh, Jamie Presley. And he knocked it out of the park. He was great. And I think that was really what what got him got him got him the uh, the role. You know? Maybe and Fat have a really good comic chemistry in the oh, movie. Yeah. Yeah. Really was uh, was he always a pickpocket? Oh yeah, yeah. That was, that was <laughs> yes. That, was that wasn't that didn't come up spontaneously. Uh, no, that was from the original yeah. pitch. The original yeah. idea. It's interesting. James King, who plays the female lead, a lot of interesting actresses read for that part. Um, I know. Uh, Eliza Dushku uh, read for that. Um, uh, oh, who's there's another woman from there's a lot of fast, yeah, the Fast and Furious uh, first movies, female lead on her name. She, she plays uh, Paul Walker's wife in those movies, right? Right, well, there were a lot of uh actresses that read for that part also that did screen tests with with Shawin Scott once he was cast. So, well, I, lo I love the fact that she's uh, she's a mob princess. <laughs> yes, Jordana Brewster side. Jordana Brewster, yes, yeah. Jordana Brewster yeah. was up for that part. Um, well, it's funny because just to, to the tone change, 
the gang that she's the part of, her, her sort of gang boyfriend in the crime world, in the original, uh, uh, more subversive, edgier script that Ethan oh, and I wrote, yeah. his name was Mr. Fucktastic. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> yeah. And in fact, he still wears, you can see, he still has that tattoo on his chest. And then as it became clear that this movie was becoming more of a family-friendly movie, they sort of like blurred it or CGI'd it out so it maybe looks like Mr. Funktastic, maybe, perhaps? Yeah. No, exactly. Well, I think that's what, it's not maybe, they dubbed him into Mr. Oh, they literally, yeah, I, I haven't seen the movie yeah. in a while. Yeah, they literally yeah. changed, uh, changed the wording. Now, now, one of my favorite characters, uh, who I thought was very effective, was uh, your, one of your bad, definitely the bad girl in the piece. Oh, yeah. Victoria Perfect. Perfect is the actress. Yeah, she was right. great. She was great. I mean, she yeah. had... She was the beginning of, you know, uh, wicked females were starting to populate films uh, in droves. And she certainly did her job as a, uh, I guess you'd say she's a neo-Nazi princess. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. Great. She's great. <laughs> it's funny. Now, you're a film historian and a guy. See, we, I have to say the other fun thing, and I want Ethan to tell the story. We got to work with the legendary Mako on this movie. Mako plays the... Japanese, the owner of the Chinese movie theater, who I think we make a joke in the movie that he's actually Japanese. Um, but Ethan, do you remember when we were on the set that day and Mako asked you that that great question? You had a great yeah, Mako. Uh, do you know the story that I'm telling? Oh, about? The, with the you mean the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Tell the story. No, I I just remember the punchline. I don't remember. Oh, well, Mako goes up to Ethan and I'm staying there, and he says, you know, oh, this next scene. Should I play it with my teeth in or my teeth out? And he pulls his dentures out. <laughs> and then Ethan says, tell me, tell me you said, Ethan. What did I say? I just remember oh. the teeth. Oh, and Ethan said, Mako, it's not a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was pretty funny. That's good. About 10 years before you guys did uh, Bulletproof oh, Monk, man. I was in Houston working on a movie called Sidekicks. It was a Chuck Norris family oh, movie. And yeah. I got a chance to work with Mako too. He's a real interesting yeah. guy. I, I I like like pray at the the altar of the sand pebbles. It's one of my all-time oh, wow. movies. Yeah, great movie. Wow. And the, the, it has one of the most excruciating torture scenes to watch. You know, he, Mako spread eagled on yes. the bamboo yeah. pebbles, and the guy's slicing him with his ah. his uh so you know you gotta you gotta learn about these things. So I asked Mako. I said, Mako, that scene was horrifying. And he said, he says the guy who was torturing me was one of my best friends. <laughs> he, huh. was like a, he was like a teacher from a local school, and the the machete blade had a little device on it that every time he sliced uh, or fake slicing Mako, he would push a little device, and blood or you know. Full faux blood would drip onto his chest. It huh. was just classic. But Mako, what what a what a great force. Okay, so here's a story I actually do remember. I don't know if Cy remembers this. And this is one of those, I guess the the story Cy just told is another example of kind of producerial services that we rented on Bulletproof <laughs> Monk. Like, put your teeth back in, actor. But this was a, this is the source of another one. Cy and I were on the the lot, the studio lot at um, Columbia, which isn't that far from where Cy lives, actually. It was Columbia, this Columbia lot in, in Culver City. Sony now, it's now Sony. Yeah, well, Sony, Columbia. And 
we got into an elevator. Might have been in the parking structure. I don't remember. And Mako was in the elevator. And we both instantly recognized him and started talking to him about what big fans we were of his we were. And, and he was really nice. He was really cool. He was, like, happy that these two guys, you know, at the time, this young is guys. This is before. Yes, yes. And then... And then sometime X number of months later, we were in a pre-production meeting on Bulletproof Monk. And the I the question came up, who were we going, who are they going to cast as the owner, operator, manager of the Chinatown movie theater? And Sai and I looked at each other and we both said, Mako. Mako got cast. Because we, you know. I don't know that we would have had the presence of mind to think of Mako if we hadn't literally crossed paths with him like a matter of, you know, weeks or months before that. But it was kind of like the cinema gods, you know, put us in that place so that we could think to mention him. And then it worked out. Well, this this has been a delicious conversation, guys. I mean, anybody who's listening who has not seen Bulletproof Monk, it does stream. It's probably on one of on the demand services. It's a fun movie. It's uh, if you're if you're into martial arts sequences, there's great martial arts. There's great myth, myth mythos. There's some good Chinese mythos, fun performances. Uh, just, just I, I enjoyed it very much, and I'm delighted that we had a chance to talk about a movie you said you don't get a chance to talk about much. No, it's true. I couldn't even believe it was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's well, shocking. Um, we've been. This is Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. I just wanted to tell everybody that we are on the spotify amazon and apple platforms please subscribe if you haven't we try to present a good show each week we're starting to turn videos onto youtube there's going to be a youtube channel and uh just definitely keep listening ethan Sai, thank you so much hey thank you steve thank you we've, we've been listening to ethan reef and cyrus voris who i call Sai. you go by Sai, right Yes, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Hey, thank you.